If you'll please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. I'm going to read through verses 16. I'm going to go 16 to the end. It's a lot, but I think it's important. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father, the child, and the children shall raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another, for verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be gone. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my father which is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Usually, uh, when I bring a message to you, it's from uh, my own life. Things that I'm looking at and considering for myself. And I'm trying to be a faithful disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I have been considering is what Jesus means by this. What is he talking about when he says a disciple 
is not above his master. And that word master also means teacher. You know, in the older English, it meant teacher as well. Disciple is not above his teacher. And when we consider our Lord Jesus, we know that he is now raised from the dead, glorified, ascended to the right hand of the Father, all power and authority been given to him. All of providence is in his hands. The Father judges no one, has committed all judgment to the Son. The keys of death and hell belong to him. And yet he has left for us in the Gospels a pattern and example for how we have to live in this life. Jesus himself having gone through it before us. He is the trailblazer. He broke the path. You know, that is the reason why Jesus was baptized. He united himself to us in our experience and led the way. Jesus didn't need a baptism for the repentance or repentance and forgiveness of sins. This was to unite himself to us, to sanctify our baptism to us, and to be the guide of what a true follower of God must be. And so he has left us a perfect example. And so when Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher, he's saying, you must follow me and expect in your life my experience because you're following me. Remember your baptism. I always like to remind you of your baptism. There's a whole lot of implications in your baptism. Your baptism symbolizes your union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And it also symbolizes your divorce. Your divorce from the world. And your divorce from your former life so that you could be married to another. The scripture actually uses those terms. Having followed the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, now you have to consider your discipleship. Following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he teaches us in this passage what we can expect. Now, the immediate application of this passage was when Jesus is sending out his disciples in those days to minister and teach in his name. He's preparing them for the ministry they're going to have in the future. But if you notice in this passage, he's conflating two things. He's talking about the uh, immediate where they're going to go out and preach and teach in his name right there right then, and he's also talking about the future and experience for all believers. He's combining these things together, kind of going back and forth, so that this teaching isn't just for the 12, but it's for all of us, all of us who have to follow. It's true, we're not all called to be apostles, but we are all called to be disciples. And so the things that are written here have direct application to you the disciple is not above his teacher 
there are those teaching in Jesus' name right now who say that you can expect a totally different experience than what Jesus had. He dealt with suffering, so you'll never have to suffer. He was poverty-stricken so that you can be wealthy and have your best life now. They teach these things in Jesus' name. You're not going to pull that from the Bible. That is a, a complete misrepresentation of what Jesus actually taught. He's teaching in many passages, and we're going to look at some others, because Jesus uses this term four times that I found. He uses, um, he uses this term in Matthew, Luke, and twice in John, in the Gospel of John. I'll look at all of them. Because he uses it in different ways. He takes the same saying, the disciple is not above his teacher, and he's teaching the same teaching, but he's making some different applications with it. Because it's a general truth. It's a general truth that has lots of different applications. The disciple is not above his teacher. If you're going to be a follower of him, expect your discipleship to reflect Jesus' life. We talked about this morning how a believer is united to Jesus Christ. If you're one with him, your life should reflect his life. So what does he bring up here in this passage that we just read? Things that a true disciple of Jesus Christ can expect. One of the things he brings up is slander. He says, they call the master of the house Beelzebub. What are they going to call those who belong to that house? If they're saying that I'm a son of the devil, what are they going to call you? And you might say to yourself, well, nobody says that about Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus, right? Jesus is great. Everybody likes Jesus. The whole world likes Jesus. Well, not so much. There are plenty of phony Jesuses out there. The world has no problem with a false Jesus, a Jesus that looks like the world. But when you start preaching what Jesus preached, all you got to do is repeat what Jesus says. You find out how much the world really doesn't like Jesus. Jesus is easy to like when you don't really have any content there. When you just have an image of this nice guy who, you know, loves animals and hugs kids and heals people. Yeah, it's hard not to like somebody. But Jesus had a powerful message. It cut like a sword. He came to convict the world of sin. The world doesn't like to be convicted of sin. He says you can expect to be spoken against. Falsely accused. You as a disciple, individually, don't be too surprised when you're falsely accused. And you have to remember that the world, a lot of times, is not going to understand what we're doing. Why we say what we say, what we do, what we do. It's going to come off to the world as self-righteousness. A lot of times it's going to come off to, as hypocrisy or mean. Be, you're just being mean. You just don't love people. That's the kind of thing you're going to hear. But even though the world doesn't understand, you have to stick with what Jesus has taught. 
Jesus said, if you're following him, expect the world to not get it and to speak ill of you. Don't be surprised by that. There is a movement within evangelicalism. This, I don't know when this started. Maybe in the 80s. This idea that the world should always be happy with Christians. And the world should love Christians and respect Christians. And if the world doesn't, Christians are doing something wrong. So you should be more winsome. You should be more loving. You know, bring in the rock and roll. Do whatever you got to do to make the world like you. The most important thing is that the world likes you. And if the world likes you, then you can tell them about Jesus and they'll get saved. But that is not, that didn't happen in Jesus' ministry. It didn't happen in the apostles. Was Jesus doing it wrong? The apostles doing it wrong? No. No, we don't try to win over the world by becoming worldly. You have to just continue following the Lord Jesus Christ, living a godly, righteous life, agreeing with God, and speaking the truth. And it's true, we do speak it in love. But nowadays, it's easy to be called a hater. All you have to do is disagree on the slightest thing and be as gentle as you possibly can, and they're still going to accuse you of being a malicious monster who hates everybody. So you can't be moved by that. You have to follow the Lord Jesus in this and expect slander. He mentions here how you will be delivered up to councils. Brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony. I think about that, uh, that baker out west who had to appear before the Supreme Court because he would not participate in all the celebration around gay marriage. He was trying to be as nice as he could. He tried to go as far as he could without violating his conscience. Not good enough. You have to bow. You have to bow and give in 100% or you will be punished. And this man had to face prosecution for simply saying, I don't want to participate in this. That's it. He, didn't, he wasn't even harsh. He didn't throw out any judgments or condemnations. All he wanted to do was just back up and abstain from participating. He has to be punished. And that leads to the next thing, demands to compromise. There are going to be demands to compromise. We're seeing that already beginning here in our country. And it's going to get worse. And we can expect that, these demands to compromise, to increase. It's going to become costly to be a Christian in America. Is that a price you're willing to pay? It's been easy to be a Christian in this country for many, many years. I've said before, those days are coming to an end. It's going to cost you something now. might lose your job. might get the mob after you. Falsely accused, prosecuted. There's all kinds of bad things can happen now. Or just generally hated and 
classified as an evil person. You fundamentalist Christians, you're in the same category as the Ku Klux Klan. You're in the same category as a Nazi. You're going to hear that stuff. Even if it's unjust. We had nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan. We condemn racism. We got nothing to do with anti-Semitism. We condemn what the Nazis did. It doesn't matter. If you disagree with the world, if you refuse to compromise, you're evil. You're just like they are. That isn't reasonable. That isn't fair. But you can expect that kind of treatment. But notice what Jesus says here. In verse 16, he says, I sent you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What is he saying there? He's saying, don't be naive. One of the things that when I was a young Christian, there was kind of a call to be naive. You should just be very gullible. It's righteous to be gullible and naive. There is nothing righteous about gullible, gullibility and being naive and having your head stuck in a hole in the ground and not knowing what's going on. There's no righteousness in that. You're supposed to know what's going on. He says here, you should be wise as a serpent. You should see what's happening and put it together. The key is, what is going to be your response? Harmless as a dove. We're going to follow the way of Jesus Christ. His method of dealing with an evil world system was gospel power. You don't see Jesus starting an armed movement or political action or any of those kind of things. Social activism. What was it that Jesus did? He preached the word of God. Spiritual weapons. That's all we have. That's all we're to use. We're to pray. We're to live a righteous, godly life. Keep ourselves clean from the things of the world that are displeasing to God. Pray for our enemies and love them. We overcome evil with good. We, re we retaliate to evil with good. Do not seek revenge. Do not hold a grudge. We were blind too once. People are in the snare of the devil. They don't know. Many of these people don't know. And we can think of them as victims in a lot of ways. You remember when Christ was crucified. He prayed for the ones crucifying him. He prayed to the Father to forgive them. At the moment of his greatest suffering and rejection and injustice, a man falsely accused, falsely condemned, he loved his enemies. We must never, ever be able, never let anybody accuse you of participating in something that is contrary to Jesus' method. Now, there's going to be zealots out there. We've spoken of before. There's going to be false Christians calling to methods other than what Jesus left us. Don't fall for it. It's a snare. 
says, don't fear the ones who persecute you. Rather fear to deny Christ. He says, if you want to be afraid of something, here's what you need to be afraid of. Be afraid of God. That's what he says here. He says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, that is God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If you should fear anything, it's fear of buckling at the moment of truth. Fear the compromise. Fear the sellout. That's what you should be afraid of. And your greatest enemy is right in here. We all carry a capacity for unbelief, cowardice. We all carry a capacity for that. That's what we should fear. That's our greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is always the one you carry around in your own heart. The world can tempt you. The world can seduce you. The world can provoke you. But it can't make you sin. You have to choose to do that. And so what is your greatest danger? You. Don't forget that. He says, don't think that I'm come to, sing, to send peace on earth. Well, wait a minute. I thought he is the prince of peace. I, you know, what is this? He's, there is a peace Jesus did come to bring. Spiritual peace. Peace with God. That's a different thing than what he's talking about here. He's talking about world peace. He's talking about this holding hands and singing Kumbaya, and we're all going to work together to make the world a better place. He says, that's not going to happen while you're preaching the gospel. It's not going to happen because, not because Jesus is intending to do harm on earth. It's because that's what's going to be earth's response. The world is going to reject God's offer of peace. God has sent an offer of pardon to the world. You imagine uh, uh, if you have a government and there's rebels and these rebels are out there and they're, you know, doing bad things and trying to overthrow the government or whatever. And the government says, look, I'm offering you a pardon. Just stop right now. Stop it. Come back. We'll forget everything that happened. We'll give you a complete full pardon. And, and the rebel says, no. We'll never have peace. We'll never surrender. We'll never give in. We hate you, and we will never, ever submit to you. We'll never submit to your authority. That's what the world, that's the, that's the response of the world to the gospel message. Except for those whom God's heart, hearts he's touched. The world has rejected God's offer of peace. So this is going to bring more conflict. But notice here, we read to verse 40, and he says, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And we're going to see this again as we go to the Gospel of John. It's not all going to be rejection. For a true disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, there are going to be those who do accept. 
there are going to be those who want to have peace with God. There is going to be fellowship and acceptance for the disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not completely alone. You're not going to be completely alone. So we gather here together as a body of believers. Each one of us in our own life at some point has had to come to terms with Jesus of Nazareth. Each one of us. And you have to do that as an individual, right? You can't do that collectively. You have to do that as an individual person. You have to face the fact that you're a sinner. You have to face the fact that you're on your way to hell. There are things in your life that are displeasing to God. You have to face the fact that you need a Savior, and that only one, that measures up to the requirements of the Scripture and the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. You have to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to take up the cross as an individual. And if there are times you're following Christ alone, those times do happen. When you find yourself alone, you think about John the Apostle when he was banished to the Isle of Patmos for his preaching. Maybe he was the only Christian there on that island. But he still had fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he still had the fellowship of believers in the Spirit. Here he was in fellowship with the saints that already passed on to glory. He still had spiritual communion, but he might have been alone in his own discipleship experience in this world. That might happen. But generally, that isn't. Normally, you're going to have other believers to depend on. And, that's, and we're a small minority, right? We're a little church. Well, we got a handful of people. Um, yesterday, me and my wife, we went to a, a social event I brought up this morning, and uh, it was, you know, fun. It was a public event, and there were so many people there, lots of people, and I thought to myself, even as, you know, driving through looking for a parking place, I'm like, all of these people, you know, will come out to something just to have a little bit of fun, but the most important thing in the world, you know, Sunday morning, you just get a handful of people, doesn't get a lot of attention. It's going to be a minority followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's okay. It's okay. He says, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Our closest relationships are not as important as our Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be willing to even lose your life. And whether that means to the, to the ultimate sacrifice of your physical life or whether the things you love. I'm going to lose my career. You know, I'm going to lose, I don't know, my friendships. I got a place in society I'm going to lose if I'm faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the price. And remember what Jesus said, count the cost. So, these are the things Jesus has said in this passage. When he says a disciple is not above his teacher, these are the kind of things you should not be surprised at in your own life. It's worth it.
Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 6. We'll look at another passage. Where Jesus brings up these, uses this term. says this in uh, verse 27. I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do to you, ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. Pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, Withal, it shall be measured to you again. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master. But everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Now, this statement, can the blind lead the blind, shall they not both fall into the ditch? And then he says the disciple is not above his master. He's talking about the things that he previously spoke of and the things that come after. So he's talking about how to deal with faults. He starts out by talking about the faults that you have to deal with from unbelievers. How you deal with unbelievers. And when they are in your life as a trouble, how do you deal with that? And he calls to us as believers to look at God the Father as the example. He says, look how God is kind to the unthankful and the ungrateful. Look at all the good things that God does for those that hate him. People that hate God enjoy a lot of good things in this world, do they not? 
breath in their lungs. A lot of times they experience, you know, things that we take for granted. Sunshine, a beautiful day. A good meal. Happiness and friendship. Happy marriage. There's all kinds of wonderful blessings that even the ungrateful and evil experience in this life. And he says, you are to respond to a hostile world that is going to give you ingratitude and harm. You're going to respond the way God does. Expecting nothing in return. That's hard. I find, I find that in myself, you know, when I get treated, I'm at work and I'm trying to help out, you know, the customer or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm giving them, you know, I'm really doing my best and I might get treated with, uh, you know, disrespect. You know, it's going to disrespect me or uh, even insult because I wasn't able to get him what he needed or whatever. And uh, you're like, you know, it makes you angry when you get tr treated with ingratitude, right? Like, I really tried to help this person. I did good to this person. I was doing good to this person, and they did wrong to me for no reason. Completely unjustified. I can kind of understand if I do wrong to somebody, they do wrong to me. Okay, I get that. But when you do good to somebody and they do wrong to you, that makes you mad, right? Like, that's not right. That's, that's unjust. And you, you, you know, you can feel it in yourself, you know, if you're... God says, this is what, think about what God deals with every day. The creator of the universe. How much thankfulness and gratitude does God actually get? Not a lot. And uh, when you think about all of the goodness God has shown to his creation, that ver that's very unjust. The disrespect the blasphemy, false accusations, mistrust, all these things, God, and how does God respond? He still continues to do good. And that's what Jesus is saying. You got to be like that. He says, when you do that, you will be children of God. He says, you shall be the children of the highest. When your behavior reflects your heavenly father, that's when you know you're on the right path. When you get treated like God gets treated, you know you're following God. <laughs> He's kind to the unthankful and to the evil. This is hard. This goes really against our nature. Our nature is to what? It's all self-defense. I got to justify myself. I have to make sure nobody does me wrong. I got to be quick to retaliate if somebody does wrong against me. That is not what Jesus says here. Is that weakness? Is that cowardice? It is not weakness or cowardice to follow the way of God. It takes courage to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that, that evil is conquered with good. You don't conquer evil with evil. 
What does it say in James? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your wrath is not going to produce righteousness. It is only following the way of Christ. Mercy, forgiveness, willingness to turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about turning the other cheek. He's talking about dealing with insults, dealing with injustice. Doesn't mean you're supposed to be naive to go out there and try to be a victim like you're righteous by making yourself a victim or being abused on purpose like a fool. God isn't calling you to be a fool. He says you are to be wise as a serpent. But we're to love our enemies and do good. This is the correct response from a follower of Jesus Christ. You should always think to yourself, how did Jesus deal with these kind of problems? You have professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what you professed in your baptism, remember? So now we have to live that out. He also tells us in the last part of this uh, passage we read, where he talks about the disciple is not above his master. He says, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? That word mote, it's an old word, it means a splinter, right? So he's talking about you find a fault in your brother, your fellow Christian. Maybe he's, you know, done something wrong against you. It happens. We're still sinners. We're not perfect, right? So even a Christian who's trying his best is going to mess up. Jesus compares that to having a little splinter. That's what you should think of your brother's sins as being. When a Christian does wrong against you, you should not think of it as this very huge, heinous crime. You should think of it as this little, small splinter. Because what is his sins against you compared to your sins against God? Ain't your sins against God bigger? Should always evaluate your sins in comparison with your brother's sins. Always. And when you do that, you'll realize your sins are like having a big beam in your eye compared to having a little splinter. So he's saying when you're dealing with a brother, you should do that with gentleness. And you should always consider yourself. Always consider yourself and make sure you examine your own heart first. Look and see where you're in the wrong. Be humble. Admit your own faults. If you've got a big beam in your eye, you ain't got any business worrying about the little splinter in her eye. Or his eye. We can all find sins out on each other. It isn't hard to do. But you should always consider yourself first. The scripture teaches always consider your brothers and sisters in Christ above you. When I stand up here, you know, it's a great privilege that, that uh, Pastor Ron has given me to be able, when he, in his absence, to teach you something from the Bible. That's a wonderful privilege. I count it as a wonderful honor I'm not worthy of. Um... But I consider myself a servant. You know, I'm, I see it as serving you. 
not above you dictating to the little people. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm just up here so you can hear me. But in, in the spiritual reality, I'm beneath you. I'm your servant. And isn't that what the apostles even taught? The apostles said, we, we're your servants for Christ's sake. We're not lords over your faith. We're your servants. And that's the way we should all consider each other that way. Always consider your brother or sister more important than you. It even says that in the scripture. Consider them more important to you. Think about that kind of humility. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody did that? Man, it'd probably be a nice place to live, wouldn't it? Well, we can't expect non-Christians to live by these principles. It's going to be enough if we can live by them. So let's put our utmost effort into following Jesus' uh, pattern here. He is leaving us. Remember what he says. If the blind follow the blind, where are you going to end up? In a ditch. Disciple is not above his teacher. So he's, he's now he's saying you've got to follow him. If you're not following his example... You're going to follow some other example, and you're going to end up in a ditch. Right? The world teaches a totally different way of dealing with insults and injustice, doesn't it? The world teaches another way. A way that comes more naturally. But if you follow that way, you're going to end up, you're following the blind, and you're going to end up in a ditch. Let's consider another passage where Jesus uses this terminology. John chapter 13. These chapters here, John 13 through 17, are amazing. A lot to learn. And here's just one little part. Here at the Last Supper... Jesus is going to give them a wonderful lesson here. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed, Neither not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. 
if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So here again, the Lord Jesus uses this same terminology. The servant is not greater than his Lord. And he says explicitly, I'm leaving you an example. So what is Jesus showing here? What is the example he's given us? Well, first of all, we've got to consider who he is. He says, you've called me Lord and Master, and you're right, for so I am. This is the Lord. This is the Son of God, the Messiah. The Eternal One. And he gets down on his knees and washes the nasty feet of a bunch of sinners. The one who is to be king of the universe. And if you let that sink in, that's huge. You don't see that from the leaders of the world, do you? You don't see that. You don't see the head of the UN girding a towel and getting down on his knees, washing feet. This isn't, that isn't the kind of world we live in. Those who rule seek to have their feet washed. And Jesus gives us a different example. Humility. The greatest man ever born. To show this kind of humility, he's given the, the greatest example of humility. Self-denial. Think about it. He put his own needs and desires on the back burner to put other people first. And not only those who are worthy of that, but those who are unworthy of it. Because these very ones whose feet he washed, he already knew in his great time of trouble, they were going to run away and abandon him. People he already knew were going to let him down and fail. He still was going to get down and wash their feet. That's love. That's love when you can do that. He's given us the greatest example of love that anybody could possibly give. It's one thing to love somebody who loves you back. Jesus said that. Sinners do that. But to love somebody that doesn't love you. It's one thing to, to love somebody that never lets you down. But to love somebody that you know is going to let you down. That's the kind of love that Jesus gives us a pattern and example for. You see how Jesus gives life to the commandments of God. These kind of things were taught in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the one who exemplifies. He lived those things. You want to see what the Ten Commandments looks like in a person? You look at Jesus Christ. That's, that is a person with the law on his heart. So it says in the Psalms. I have, this is what the Messiah says in the Psalms. Your law is in my heart. And it is. This is, this is what the law looks like when it is put into practice. Love. Humility. 
self-denial. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be like this. So are we able to do this? Not in our own strength, but with the power of Christ we can. Remember, we have a sin nature that wants to be the boss. Wants to be the highest. We have a sin nature that doesn't want to be humble. Only wants to love when it's going to get in return. But Jesus said, true love loves even when it's not going to get in return. Jesus said, expect nothing in return. You love because you want to be like Jesus. And it may be that that self-sacrificial love, that power of the gospel exemplified in you, you see, that's what people's going to see. That this is more than just a book. Anybody can run out right now and go buy one of these. But what you can't see is this being lived out everywhere. That's hard to find. When you see this in somebody's heart and it flowing out. And it makes them into a, a new person. A person that looks like Jesus and acts like Jesus. That's when you know that this isn't just a story. That's when you know that this is something real and powerful that actually changes people. That there's power here. That there is such a thing as love. There's such a thing as goodness. There's such a thing as truth and beauty. And I can see it in a person. What is this? Who's responsible for this? Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who brings us to life spiritually. He has done this and we follow his example because of that. Now flip over a little bit, a couple of pages to John chapter 15. And he uses it one last time. Chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me, before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world... But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me 
without a cause. The fact is, your life, empowered by the gospel, is going to have an effect. It's always going to have an effect. Your life is going to have either a positive effect in that people are going to be saved, they're going to hear the word of God, they're going to be better for it, or your life is going to infuriate a hostile world and create a negative reaction. But it's never going to be neutral. If you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a reaction. And Jesus says that this is because you expose the world for what it really is. You expose the world for what it really is. When you think about the, uh, you think about just like the pro-life movement, you think about the fury that the world has. What is it that these people are doing that's so bad? They expose what abortion really is. That's it. They expose what abortion really is. You take away all the pretty language and euphemisms and all the talk about women's rights and they try to cover it all up and make it pretty and make it sound just. But these pro-life activists, they reveal that it's hideous and ugly and destructive and murderous and the epitome of injustice. And it drives them nuts because you're taking the mask you're showing the truth about what that really is, what they're really doing. All you got to do is just stand there. You don't have to say anything. You just stand there and pray. That's it. And they're filled with fury because you're exposing the truth. And that's what Jesus said we can expect. He said, that, you know, this is why the world hates him. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. That's why the world hates Jesus. That's it. They don't hate him because he's healed people and done all this nice stuff. They hate him because he exposes sin. And that's the reason why. They're going to hate a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not to give the world just cause for hatred. Remember, we're warned against this too. If you're out there doing wrong things and the world hates you, don't blame that on Jesus or being a Christian. If you go out there and you're doing legit wrong things and the world is hates you for it, that's on you. That's not because of the gospel. So we got to be very careful that any accusation and hatred leveled at us is for righteousness sake. I don't want anybody to have a just cause against me. If, if I'm hated, I want it only to be because I'm standing with God. That's it. So, these are the four times that Jesus uses this terminology in the gospel. And so we've seen some applications of that. Notice how he uses it in different ways. He uses this term, disciples, not both. His master uses it in different ways. But all of them are related. So I wanted to conclude, and as my wife says, I have really long conclusions. We'll look at some conclusions about the characteristics of a 
a true, genuine disciple. When I think about that word disciple, I just picked out some places where Jesus uses the word disciple. And get from that, okay, what does a disciple look like? So we can make sure that we look like that. I want to, if I'm a disciple, I want to be a legit disciple. I'm not playing with this. Are you playing with this? Are you playing at being a Christian? Or is it, are you 100%? If you're going to be 100% as a Christian, it's going to take dedication. It's going to take resolve and commitment. So let's look at some things that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus uses the word disciple. Just not looking at long passages, but turn back to Matthew chapter 9. And I'm just going to bring up some points here. Chapter 9, verses uh, 36. 936 and following. So here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, when he saw, when Jesus saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So here we see he's speaking to his disciples and although he's speaking to the 12 here, we know that this has application to us. We also being disciples, we should have the same kind of attitude, heart attitude and desire. What Jesus is commanding to them, he's also commanding to us. We should have a concern for the harvest. He looked out on the ignorant multitudes with compassion. Not hatred or contempt. The fact that they didn't know what they were doing did not arouse revulsion in him toward these people. When I look at world leaders today, when I listen to them talk, world leaders, when they talk about the people, what do you sense? Contempt. You just can't hide it. It's very clear that they don't really like the people. They don't respect them. It's bad when you got leaders like that. They have contempt for the people that they're supposed to be taken care of. But you don't see that from Jesus Christ. How does he look at people? Even people that are against him. He's filled with compassion. He cares about them. He feels for them in his heart. That's the kind of king you want, isn't it? Isn't that the kind of king you want? Somebody who really does care about the people. And he has compassion and he says to his disciples, there's a big harvest out there. There's a lot of people that need the word of God. Pray that God will send laborers out to his harvest. These people need God. And you know what? You know who those laborers are? You're one of those laborers. 
You're one of them. Say, I'm a nobody. I just, you know, I ain't around 10 people during the week. You can be a light to those 10 people. You be a light wherever you are. Whatever God has called you to, wherever you are, be a light. And be a blessing. You are to be an instrument of God's blessing. You are important. Every Christian is important. And you have a ministry. Every Christian has a ministry. Some people don't like using that term, you know, for ordinary Christians. They think, they, no, no, you should never say, it. I don't believe in that. I think every Christian does have a ministry. What is that word? Ministry is you're a servant. That's what the word means, is servanthood. Every Christian is a servant, and you're to, to be a servant to the people you're around by loving them and showing them mercy and giving them God's truth as best you can. And live as holy a life as you can for others so that you don't discredit the message. Because if you're not living up to this, you're discrediting the, the message. If you, you, you know, you're, you're not going to be perfect, you're going to make mistakes. But when you do make mistakes, when you do sin, own up to it, confess, repent. People need to see that too. People need to see repentance. They need to see what that looks like. They need to see what seeking forgiveness looks like. Show them that. Admit you don't have to cover up and, and pretend like you do everything perfect. No, no, no. No, give them an example also of what to do when you do wrong or make a mistake. Give them a good example. And work for that harvest. If you look down a little bit on the page to uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus says, when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases. You say, well, wait a minute. This surely ain't got nothing to do with me. Here he's talking about, you know, casting out evil spirits and doing miracles and stuff. Well, there's a principle here. It's true. The apostles had a special calling that ordinary Christians do not have. In some senses. But the fact is, you also are called to a warfare against these forces. It makes that very clear in the New Testament. James says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You're going to be contending with dark forces. That's just a reality. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches every Christian to put on the armor of God. Because you're going to have to stand in the evil day against who? These powerful forces of darkness. The devil and evil spirits. They're working in the world too. And... Sometimes there's going to be run-ins. You can read in Ephesians chapter 6 how you as a disciple have to be prepared for that. You've been given two weapons of offense. You have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and you got all prayer. Prayer and the Word of God. That's how you oppose these dark forces. Everything else is defense. The helmet of the hope of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. To defend yourself from the flaming arrows of the evil one. We're warned against his schemes 
and wiles and tricks and snares. You know, there are dark forces. And let me tell you something. When you get baptized, when you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you get attention. Oh, I'm just a little nobody. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a deacon. I'm not a missionary. I'm just a nobody. No, you're a believer. You are united to Jesus Christ. And don't be surprised when you get hostility from the world and from evil forces because you're a Christian. It's a big deal to be a Christian. So a Christian, a true disciple, is going to be able to resist those things. You're going to have to fight with these things. A true Christian should not be deceived or overpowered. A true disciple if you turn over to chapter 15, verse 2 in Matthew, here's another thing that Jesus teaches about disciples. I'll read it, verse, uh, start at verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So here, they're being accused, well, hey Jesus, your disciples disregard traditions. What's up with that? So does Jesus say, wow, you know, you're right, scribes and Pharisees. I better get on my disciples to do better. He doesn't do that, does he? He defends them. A disciple of Jesus Christ is not going to get sidetracked by human traditions. We got enough to deal with with what God has revealed. Unscriptural traditions, whether good intended or not, are always going to be an obstacle to following Jesus Christ. They are. There's a lot of traditions... In, in even solid Baptist churches, you get used to them and you don't think about them. But there are times where human man-made traditions, no matter how good your intentions, that can interfere in faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see his disciples. I mean, what's the big deal about them washing their hands, right? They could have done that. Because they're not going to do it on principle. I'm not going to be bound by other people's rules. You can't just make up a rule and lay that on me. I don't care how good your intentions are. God has given me rules. Those are what I have to be thinking about. I'm willing to take the yoke of Christ and listen to his commandments. But I don't have time and I got enough on my plate to be burdened down with human traditions. So don't look at that as like a virtue to adopt everybody else's ideas if they're not scriptural, okay? And some people will try to guilt you into that. I remember how it was growing up in the Baptist church. They had that thing with alcohol. These holy lips have never touched a drop of alcohol. You hear ridiculous things. Listen, it's a man-made tradition. I can assure you your lips aren't holier than Jesus' lips, and his lips touch alcohol. So... <laughs> <clears throat> that's a man-made tradition. But these people were bound to it. I mean, it was in the church constitution. Buddy, 
a matter of fact, in our church constitution, <laughs> you weren't even allowed to shop at a store that sold alcohol. It was in our Baptist church constitution. You could not even darken the door of a store that sold alcohol. And they probably felt very virtuous, you know, doing that. Okay, now I love, I love my forefathers in the faith, and I bless them, and I thank them for my fundamentalist forefathers. I was saved in one of them churches, and I thank God for them. And I show them their due respect. But I don't have to follow their errors. And that is an error, and I'm not following it. Okay? If I choose to abstain from alcohol, I'm going to do it for my own reasons, and I do. But I'm not going to put that on anybody else. And I'm not going to claim that as the word from God, because it isn't. All right? So, we have to be careful about man-made traditions. And finally, flip over to chapter uh, 16. One last verse we're going to look at. A couple of verses. In verse uh, 13, 16, 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. So here he again, speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the disciples that were in front of him, but this is something he expects from all his disciples. And you have to, he's asking you this question, who is the Son of Man? Who is he? Who is he to you? Who is he for real? That's a question you've got to answer as an individual to yourself. And notice that Peter answers for all of them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the highest one, the Messiah. No one else. The one mediator between God and men. He called him the highest thing you can call him. And he made it public. He understood who Jesus was as a disciple. And he made that profession public. And that's exactly what you have to do as a disciple. You can't beat around the bush or be ashamed or embarrassed of it. Jesus asks you, who is the Son of Man? And you have to be willing to say to him and to the world, he is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. There is no other. There will never be another. It's a high profession of faith. And Jesus blesses it. He blesses it. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. God, if you can say that from the heart, that Jesus is the son of God, the savior of the world, if that comes from your heart, that didn't come from just a family tradition or something you read somewhere. If that's from the heart, it was the Holy Spirit who put that in your heart. It was God who showed you that. And you have to be public about that. God requires that of all the disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's conclude with that and give thanks to the Lord.